Almighty God, we come here before you asking that you would illumine to us your word and that it is, as it is illumined, may our hearts be softened so that we may receive what you have for us, your people, that we may be changed and that we may live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let us turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We, just, we finally put our page numbers up, and so you can find this on page 1, just in case you didn't know. And so, so there's no confusion. Our Bible reading today is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. And then if you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Conspiracy theories are in vogue today, and I don't know how you feel about that. I've been, I've been listening to people and the questions they ask, even, you know, can you answer this question or can you take on this topic on the podcast and things like that. And I think people are sometimes testing you, you know, when they ask you, oh, do you believe this? Do you believe uh, this current game that might play in this evening? There's all these conspiracies flying around. You know, it's because of this and that and that happening. What do you think? I usually, well, concerning today's game, it's a battle between two cities, but concerning today's game, I, I don't really care much. Uh, but there are conspiracies. I mean, it's not like there aren't any conspiracies. There are actual conspiracies. Like, this is an actual conspiracy, I know many of you are now scared about what I might say next, but no, there's actually a conspiracy, and it's, it's corporate espionage, and it's a case that's open right now against McDonald's and Kitsch, and this is one of those cases, uh, if you know, you know, you know. Why are all the ice cream machines always broken? They did a survey back in 20, I think 20 or something like that, and they surveyed 2,000 McDonald's franchises, and around 25% of their ice cream machines were broken, so they started to look into it, and all these conspiracies blew up. Now there's an actual court case where this company is suing um, the maker of these McDonald's ice cream machines because they have found that there's actual corporate espionage between the ice cream, maker, ice cream machine maker and McDonald's to keep it broken constantly, which is interesting, but I won't get too much into it, but... I want to get back to the idea of conspiracy theories. If you are someone, and I think when I said it's in vogue these days, I think more and more people have started to believe more and more conspiracies, yes? And when you really get into these conspiracy theories, you start to think even like maybe everything is a conspiracy. Maybe everything is a conspiracy. And then when that happens in your life, that 
That is what concerns me. Because when people have come to me and said, don't you know that the world leaders have this and, you know, this football game is rigged and yada, yada, yada. The reason why that, con- that concerns me is because it takes away from you believing that you have any significant weight in the world. When you start believing everything is a conspiracy theory, you, it starts to take away from you believing that you have any significant weight in the world. And more importantly, what that leads to is it takes away from you understanding that God is sovereign over all and that it is light that always, always breaks the darkness. The light always breaks the darkness because God is sovereign. By now, with every generation, if you've been listening to this Genesis sermon series, with every generation, and I'm going to tie that together with my earlier point, with every generation, the challenge that Genesis brings should be apparent. Whether you think we live in the scientific age or the paganistic age, which apparently we are becoming more and more, the polytheistic age, the dualistic age, the age that believed in the eternity of matter, the age that believed that all matter is evil, where we have Gnosticism, the astrological age, the nihilistic age, and the list can go on. And I believe, yes, the scientific age belongs in that category, right alongside all the other things that I mentioned. Genesis challenges every single ideology and thought that these ages bring, because what these ages bring is a reduction of human meaning and it reduces it to emptiness. Because it is in Genesis, we see that in all of God's creation, it's the creation of man, meaning both male and female, that is the pinnacle. The people of God knew that this was an actually audacious claim to make when it was pitted against all the other philosophies of the world, just like it is today. But the people of God knew that this was true. In Psalm 8, a quote that we read in the book of Hebrews, David writes this, and I think it poignantly captures this thought. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Because when you start to think about it, it's man that ponders the weight or the meaning of his existence. As great as the bodies in the heavens are, these celestial bodies don't ponder their existence. And when you recognize how God crowns man with dominion over his creation, it further then puts the believer in a state of awe. And I believe it's this rational thought that has man, that has made man mature to the degree that it has. You know, if it really were simply about power and dominance, we would indeed be no different than any other creature. But in man's conquest throughout the ages, throughout his history, people have sat and they have wondered. And one particular quote stays with me from Julius Caesar. 
and he writes this in the commentaries on the Gallic War. And this is what he says. All men are driven by one thing, the desire for praise. When our spirits are broken by labors, when fortune shakes our plans, and when the hour of death has come, memory of virtue is the only comfort that remains. And that's from Julius Caesar. If we really are merely chemicals just simply trying to survive, why is virtue something that lasts even on your deathbed? And it seems that all the great conquerors of the past have contemplated and pondered the meaning of life one way or another. Now, these are people that have reached the pinnacle of human dominance. From Alexander the Great to Napoleon Bonaparte to even Winston Churchill, even Genghis Khan has said, conquering the world on horseback is easy. It is dismounting and governing that is hard. These great conquerors of the past have contemplated the transient nature of power. It's only the fools of today that think that they know something when they know nothing about history and believe that power is everything. And when you continue to think about it, animals don't ponder about virtue. Plants don't ponder about how they can govern well. And there is a concept that we will continue to explore in the coming weeks as well and see how it correlates with these past passages. And the concept I speak about is the concept of work. One of the things that people of all stages of life, I believe, wrestle with this very concept of work. And I'm going to also tie these two things together in one form or another. We wonder about the work that we do. What is it that I ought to do? How do I do it? Is this even worth it? Why am I even here working this job, etc.? People ponder these things. But human design and God's work, then in this passage, the passage that we've read previously in chapter 1, is shown here as ultimately connected. And while it, become, it will become increasingly apparent in the following verses and the following sermons after this, we are now at a middle portion. So we can see this passage then as a hinge of sorts. The passage that we've read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, it's a hinge, it's a middle passage where God's work is in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, verse 4 and on, we see the work of man. And here in verses 1 to 3, there is a connection. There is a hinge that connects the two works, and that connection is the Sabbath. I don't think it's any coincidence that the Sabbath follows after the creation of man, showing us that somehow even we are more directly connected to the Sabbath than any other part of creation. So it took six days for God to finish his work of creation. And this means that there was nothing added afterwards. God didn't ever have to go. Whoops, I forgot about this one. And then let me create this in the end. And yes, this means even the fly and mosquito were part of God's creation. Now, I say this as no fan of the mosquito in particular. I do not have a good relationship with them. Um, I would go on trips, 
you know, I really want to be that rugged wilderness man, but I cannot. And I think one of the main reasons is my relationship with the mosquitoes. Uh, I would go on trips, let's say, outside to do some mission work, and people would get mosquito bites, but they would get like two or three, and I would come back with like 20 to 40. And people think I would be joking, but I would go then. I went to Egypt once, and I knew there were mosquitoes, so I covered myself with DEET. Like, it was a thick layer, so I was glossy as a human, right? I was glossy. My skin was glossy. And I was sitting with my other teammates who didn't put on anything. And we all see this mosquito in the air fly down toward our group. And then it came to me. And then it landed on my skin, and then it died. So it would rather die trying to get my blood than go to anybody else that didn't have DEET on them. I don't know how the fall affected mosquitoes and their nature. I didn't see them in creation. And I actually look forward to the day when the mosquito and I can live together alongside the wolf and the lamb. But when we start to think that God's work was not finished, Augustine would write about how it was the opinion of one man that God did not make flies. And we had this debate when I was in Egypt What's worse, mosquito or flies? And people would say flies. It's like, I don't think so. But one man had this opinion that God did not make flies. It was the work of the devil. Then another man would say to him, if God didn't make flies, then he didn't make worms either. And that man who had that first opinion would go, yes, that's also true. And if the devil made the fly and the worm, then God didn't make the birds, the beast, and man. And that first man came to that conclusion as well. Oh, I guess not. Why is it important that we understand that when God said he created everything, that's exactly what he meant? Augustine realized that this is something that we also ought to recognize. By denying the small things, we eventually start to deny the whole Our understanding that God created everything is pivotal to our understanding then that God is sovereign over all creation. It was by his decretive will that everything that that exists came into existence. There is no thing that is in existence that is here right now that is outside of God's will. And this is how verse 1 of chapter 2 encapsulates this understanding. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. The statement underscores the perfect execution of his will regarding creation. And it's from this understanding that we come to God finally then resting on the seventh day. And we'll come to see that these next two verses, which I will spend a huge chunk of the sermon on, this, these next two verses are chock full of meaning. Of all the days, first of all, the seventh day is mentioned here more than once. Of all the days that were mentioned, the seventh day here is mentioned more than once. How many times? It's mentioned three times. And the triple marking of this day would indicate that this day holds significance over all the other days. There is a climactic moment that is highlighted that stands apart from creation. You can see it this way then. In six days, God subdues creation. But on the seventh, he sanctifies it. And he shows it with the words that are used in verses 2 and 3. Three times the seventh day is mentioned, but the word rested also is mentioned twice. 
And the Hebrew word for rest is where we get the word Sabbath. And to Sabbath or to Shabbat means to literally cease. Shabbat means cessation. And this cessation doesn't mean inactivity at all. We still see that God will work in chapter 2. Jesus also says when he's here, my father is still working. In chapter 2, God works and he plants the garden. But it is a cessation from what then? It is a cessation from the work of creation. And it's this cessation that should pique the interest of the reader or the listener at this point. Why did God cease from his work of creation? Well, it was to show that his work was perfect. Yes, he ends it with saying he looked at everything and saw that it was very good. But there is also something else. God rests from his work of creation and then he blesses the seventh day by making it holy. It's the first time the word holy is used in the Bible. So that should mean that this word is also quite significant. Holy literally also means to be set apart. To set apart would mean holy. And that alone would have us recognize that these two verses then aren't just merely two verses that we should pass by. You know, when you have a slice of strawberry shortcake, it's a cake that I enjoy, a dessert that I enjoy, there's usually a strawberry on top of that slice. So which do you eat first? Do you eat the strawberry or do you eat the cake? And I like hearing people's answers when I ask them. I won't tell you what I think. I'll just ask you, which do you eat first? Do you eat the strawberry or do you eat the cake? I like hearing people's answers because believe it or not, for me, it's a test of one's character. Yep. There is this idea of delayed gratification that I look to and to see if you have that to a degree. But even if you don't take it to that degree, you will also agree that for most of us, we may be repulsed by someone who starts off their meal with dessert first. And why is that? But by setting apart the strawberry from the rest of the cake, I am doing something. There is a highlighting then of what is set apart. There's a highlighting of the strawberry. Yes, there is a distinction between the strawberry and cake. But by distinguishing these two parts, one can actually savor one over the other, maybe one better than the other. And I, I, while I understand this is a trite example, I hope to show by separating then the six days from the seventh, when God is doing that, God is doing something. You know, even in the ancient world, they had seven days in a week. It's not that special. It is special to a degree, but it's not that special. In ancient Egypt, they had a 10-day week, but we now know that they also had some circles where they had a seven-day cycle where it was recorded. The Babylonians also had a seven-day week as well. Each of, the name, each of the days were named after celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, Mercury, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. The Romans actually had an eight-day week where the eighth day was the market day, but they eventually adopted a seventh-day cycle, seven-day cycle because of the Christian communities in the Roman Empire, which we still keep today. But what stood out from all the other ancient empires, even if they did adopt a seven-day week, or didn't adopt a seven-day week is precisely today. 
it was the observance of the Sabbath. In Genesis, we see that the seventh day is made to stand out from the rest of the six days because of, and because of that, your week, your month, your year, and life becomes different from everyone else around you. Other gods, when they would conquer, and they would conquer in their mythology chaos and things like that, what would they do for the other gods? What they would have done for the other gods is that they would have temples built. These temples were a sign of their victory over chaos. But the God of the Bible, rather than erecting a temple, a physical temple, on creation, he instituted Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest, then, is the temporal shrine in which the people of God, then, can also rest under. And so the Bible's understanding of the week is markedly different because there was a day of rest for the people of God because we were called to imitate God, especially in this regard. And this changed not only how people worked, because you had to work harder than everybody else. If you, didn't have seven, if you didn't have all seven days to work, you had to rest. So you had to work harder than others. But also the way you rested was different than others. A complete ceasing of work is unfamiliar to the world even today. Because how can you completely cease from work? If money is king... How can you stop making it? If material is supreme, why would you stop at any point from gathering it? But this concept of Sabbath comes to us in Genesis to show us that it is God who institutes the Sabbath to show us his sovereign power over all creation. And I want to get into at least three reasons or three ways God shows us this. And number one, God rests on the seventh day to show us that his work of creation has been completed. Yes, but God resting shows us who reigns supreme over all creation. To be seated after his work is to rest, but it also is to reign. When you understand that the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments were about loving and serving God, and the last six of the Ten Commandments was about loving your neighbor, some people would have wondered how honoring the Sabbath, how resting is honoring God. And God explains in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, and this is when he gives the Ten Commandments to his people, but of all the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment has the longest explanation. And it says this in Exodus chapter 20, starting from verse 8. God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
The Sabbath day was an ordinance before the Ten Commandments. This is pointing back to creation ordinance. The fourth commandment is pointing back to creation. And by setting apart the seventh day as holy, we also honor the creator God who set apart that day as holy. This is what is meant by keeping the Sabbath. You keep the Sabbath when you make it holy unto the Lord. God gave us six days for worldly affairs, but the seventh day is a special day that we set apart to reflect on the God of creation. And the people of God do this through a special time of worship, prayer, the reading and teaching of Scripture, the singing of psalms and hymns as we gather together. I want to go to the second way God shows us what it means to have the Sabbath. Not only did God rest, but he calls on his people to rest. And by resting, we see that we can now also enjoy God and his creation. When we don't rest, not only are we not able to enjoy God, but we can't even enjoy creation. This is why the Sabbath is a gift. It's a blessing. And by blessing, I mean that God meant it for us. He blesses the seventh day so that we could enjoy what God enjoyed. And you might wonder, how can you rest when you are worried about putting food on the table? And God shows us in the Bible that he will provide for his people as they are obedient to him. In the desert, when God provided manna, it was on the sixth day they could gather twice as much because it would last until the seventh. And there is this concept that's introduced also in Exodus Uh, chapter 31, the Sabbath command is reiterated from chapter 20. It's reiterated in chapter 31. And it says, in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested. And it adds, and he was, and was refreshed. That word refreshed is used only two other times in the Old Testament. And it's one in reference to giving rest to animal servants and visitors within Israel and one in reference to David and his men in 2 Samuel 16. See, after God worked to make everything, it was as if his rest refreshed him. God's rest and refreshment means so much more than we think. It has to do with his joy and satisfaction. And God's rest and refreshment, his satisfaction, he gives to us. He gives it to us. That's why he blesses it. This is something that the Pharisees did not get in Mark chapter 2. The Pharisees saw that the only way to observe the Sabbath was through all these regulations. And they would put all these regulations regarding the Sabbath and it would become an intolerable burden for all the people. But the original intent of the Sabbath was God giving a merciful provision over his creatures. Remember that even donkeys that had to rest on the Sabbath. So when the disciples were picking grain in Mark chapter 2 because they were hungry, the Pharisees accused them of breaking the Sabbath. Now this is where it gets really interesting in Mark chapter 2. 
The disciples were hungry, so they started picking grain and eating them. The Pharisees go, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. And then Jesus does something remarkable because he refers to David eating the bread of the presence, this bread that was only meant for priests. And then you might be thinking, what does that have to do with the Sabbath at all? But it does. Jesus was showing how God made these laws not to burden man with ceremony, but to show his mercy. And he goes on further to prove this point by saying in verse 27, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That last line may seem a little bit enigmatic, but it essentially means that Jesus gets them to make the rules because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It ultimately shows us that the Sabbath was given to us as a merciful provision from God. So, when we neglect the Sabbath, we do it to our own detriment. We must rest. It is a part of the creation order meaning it is a part of our necessary well-being. And this leads us to the third way God shows us the importance of the Sabbath. And this has to do with Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. If the first way was to look back on creation history, and the second way was to see how the Sabbath impacts us today, the third way we understand the Sabbath is to look forward to its eternal and redemptive assurance in Christ. This means that those who understand the Sabbath as a past creation ordinance and a present blessing of mercy upon those who observe it also look forward to the ultimate completion of everything. When God created the seventh day and blessed it, there is one formulaic pattern he did not use that he used with the rest of the six days of creation. And again, I will remind you that when a pattern is instituted and then all of a sudden it is missing, we ought to pay even more closer attention. The seventh day is the only day where the pattern and there was evening and then there was morning is missing. Theologians all throughout time would recognize that then these two verses that we read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, were pregnant with more than just the blessing of the Sabbath. And when we tie that in with Jesus, what Jesus said in Mark 2, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the seventh day is a promise for the believer that there is a divine rest to look forward to. What started from Hebrews chapter 3, I know we read chapter 2, but what starts from Hebrews chapter 3 to chapter 4, let me read that for us. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but let me read Hebrews chapter 4 for us. And it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, for we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, 
For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This divine rest is something that God has planned. He instituted it even in the beginning. And this divine rest can only be entered in through faith in Jesus Christ. It's Christ who, as high priest, will have us draw near the throne of grace, it says at the end of chapter 4 in Hebrews. The seventh day is an incredible day because creation is finite. If something is finite, it has a beginning, but it also has an end. But it's almost as if God put an ellipsis, a dot, 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 at the end of the seventh day to show us that he has plans that are in his blessing. He has plans for those that are in his blessing to live with him for all eternity in his divine rest. There is no end to that ultimate seventh day. So from the beginning of the world, then to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they understood this and they celebrated the Sabbath on the last day of the week. And then from the resurrection of Christ, we changed. It was changed the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day. And this is what it says in the Westminster Confessions. And is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. We understand now that this divine rest can only be entered into through our ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, who took on our infirmities and put it on himself so that we could put on his perfect work and then be accepted by God. The conundrum, the conflict that we see in Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus solves. And I believe that then if you understand this, John chapter 1 verse, verse 12 and 13 really come together. And in John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 it says this, and it sums it up this way. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you, see, do you see this? The Sabbath rest that he has prepared from the beginning of creation belongs to God and those born of God. The Sabbath rest that we look forward to, that we are celebrating, commemorating today by keeping it holy, by separating this day from every other work day, this Sabbath rest belongs to those born of God, the eternal creator who is blessed forever. So let us praise him today and every other Sabbath that we come together, remembering that this is pointing to the eternal Sabbath rest, the divine Sabbath that he has prepared to us from the very beginning. Let's pray.
Almighty God, from the beginning of the world to today, this very moment, we recognize that you have blessed us by your holy word, by giving us your Sabbath, a day in which you have set apart and blessed, so that we also could be refreshed and blessed and rest in you, ultimately pointing to the eternal rest that we will have with you as your children. Help us now to follow your ways, obey your laws, looking forward to what you have prepared for your people, rejoicing in your good creation, understanding, God, that you are sovereign over all, and in your mercy you give us this special day to give you glory. Praise be to you, O God. May you be glorified in this place, in our lives. Let's take this time to pray. And as the Lord has directed us in Scripture, let us continue to lift up our lives to Him. This is a day in which we remember God's goodness, His blessings over us. This is a day that is set apart so that God would refresh us and bless us as He also rested and was refreshed. So in your hearts, in your lives, set apart this day as holy and give glory to God. Let's pray.